1: Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate and our Rewind and Rewatch series. This is episode two, talking about Open the Untouchable Gate. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. You can find our podcast on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on its own dedicated RSS feed on the podcast platform of your choice. Our Twitter account is at Open Voice Gate. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. I'm being joined alongside, as always, Case Lowe. Case, how's it going?
0: Mike Spears, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Things are still very uncertain in the world, but I know that I get the chance to talk to you. In the background right now, I have a 1994 MLB game between the Montreal Expos and the Atlanta Braves keeping me company, and we are here to talk about one of my favorite independent wrestling shows of all time. The Gate USA opened the Untouchable Gate. I love this show. I love that this show is a little bit underrated given the pomp and circumstance that surrounded Open the historic gate and I I love that I'm here talking to you Mike I hope you're doing well
1: You know what I'm doing all right I'm uh, as you said we're still in the thick of it I've been that this was a show that with how things are going I was able to get up get up early and spend my morning watching the show which like you talk about it being underrated I think this is the uh, DGUSA show that I've watched the most amount of times. It is just such a special and unique show. It does get overshadowed by Open the Historical Gate, but it's also just an incredible show. And I would argue more so than Open the Historic Gate really kind of gave like gave like proof of concept at what DGUSA could have been.
0: Will you see a larger influx of Americans on the show and meaningful independent wrestlers at this point because we're not dealing with the two cold Scorpios and the Ken Dunns. We now have Brian Danielson and Davey Richards and Brian Kendrick. And on the uh, on the opening match fray, there's, you know, guys like Eric Cannon and Hollow Wicked and Johnny Gargano. There's. Names that either mean something in the moment or names that are going to mean something in the future, whereas Open the Historic Gate, and rightfully so, I think Gabe nailed it in terms of the proof of concept of the opening show of putting their best foot forward and saying this is what we can bring to the table. This is – uh, just the bare bones, this is Drangate literally in the USA. That is the product I'm putting forth. Whereas this show, we see them start to transform into Drangate USA as a promotion. With all of this new influx and in talent, we see new Japanese guys coming in. It's a great show in front of a hot crowd in the dingy Congress Theater in Chicago.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was kind of funny when I was watching tweeting about it today. People talking about like how much of a dump this show was at. And even at this day and age, like we're talking second show. The first show, as we're gonna get into kind of the timeline between open the historic gate and open the touchable gate, things were looking good for the company, but Gabe being Gabe, the first of many times, picked an absolute shithole of a place to run in Detroit or in Chicago. And he tried to build this place up as like this great historical theater would be a great place to watch wrestling. And I feel like that everyone more remembers how bad of a venue it was versus it being like this great historical landmark.
0: So I've never been to the Congress Theater because when I moved to Chicago, it was already closed down, but I live pretty close to where this show took place. And uh, there are other venues they could have run in the nearby area that would have been much nicer. One venue that they run now and evolve the Logan Square Auditorium, which, I mean... God, one of these shows in Logan Square. I mean, it would have been it would have been unbelievable, but unbelievable, but alas, we have the Congress Theater, a just a classic Gabe Sapolsky move of booking a really good show in a really bad venue.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's something that as we get deeper into rewind and rewatch, especially as we get away from the initial proof of concept and then get into where this company was in 2013 and 2014. We're going to have some real interesting places to talk about later but this is just like a little like amuse-bouche, a little teaser of how just how things would be like in the Gabe Sapolsky Dragon Gate USA promotion. So, just so before we get into the timeline, if you've not listened to the first episode, I recommend you all go back and listen to it. We put it out 2 weeks before this. Our plan is that until everything is up and running and back to normal, we're going to be t- basically doing Every other week, we're going to go into the DGUSA catalog. We're going to compile notes on what happened and what was the timeline of events. We're going to review the show, and then we're going to talk about just the state of DGUSA at this time. If you're looking to follow along, we highly encourage it. This is one of those things that, like, I know a lot of people have been complaining about just the state of wrestling right now because of the current events. It was awesome going back and watching this 11-year-old show that I'm like— god the show is just on another plane but you can do this club wwn has a first month free promotion we should really see if we can get some money out of this case but uh, uh
0: i i uh, look i have not i've heard stories a, yeah i have not ever been a wwn affiliate but i know people that have and i know it's ended poorly every single time i don't right. know if that's the route we want to take
1: yeah that that's fair that's fair but go on there they have all they have the entire library up there and that's That's how I watch this, sadly, most of my DVDs I've sold and gotten rid of over the years. But it is a cool experience and a different time. So, without any ado, Case, let's talk about what events led up to open the Untouchable Gate that happened on September 6th, 2009. So, we're going to take this right from the uh, actual Open the Historic Gate. And there was a lot of things that were happening both in the wrestling world and in Dragon Gate uh, around this time, so okay, so I know that you kind of have a little bit of a timeline put together that you wanted to talk about before we get into the show itself.
0: Yeah, so before we get to open the Untouchable Gate, we actually need to back up to the beginning of July, which is Prehistoric Gate. It is announced on the July sixth Wrestling Observer newsletter that Brian Danielson and Davey Richards will be on the show. Uh, both of these men are working for Ring of Honor at the time, but they were not contracted Ring of Honor talent. It is also announced that in partnership with the high spots wrestling website, that Jim Ross and Jerry, the King Lawler will be doing an autograph signing at the Chicago September 6th show. And a third date is announced that is November 28th in Philadelphia at the ECW arena, which we'll be talking about on our next show. Uh, Drengate continues their global expansion as well with dates announced in Germany and England. And unfortunately, on the native side of things for Dragon Gate, they run into a little bit of hot water. Do you want to briefly talk about the scandal that was happening in Dragon Gate at the time?
1: Yeah, yeah. This is if you look at time frame. This is the time of the monkey scandal, and we. It's something that like even before we went on air, and I were like, "Oh, we got to talk about this again." Okay, but you kind of have to because this. There are certain things that happen. On untouchable gate and with people on the show that is important to know like this was happening during this time so the uh, tldr is that the dragon gate had two facilities in japan one was the building that was owned by the former president takashi okamura which had dojo had if you ever watched prime zone it had stuff there and had dorms there and then there was another dorm that was called basically sanctuary which was basically like the more physical place it's where they had the the size ring it's where they had their the workout set it was just like its own like true camp and before this that they they had pets and one of the pets was i don't even know what kind of monkey that it was but it was a monkey named Cora which has also been pronounced Cola because of how japanese english translations works that shima bought in 99 i think it was something i think he might have gotten in mexico and brought with him back but over the 10 years he basically was like okay this is now the dojo pet and he went on with his life he moved away but the big thing was there were a abuse scandal that happened that was based around the point and what was known at the time and I was someone who lived through this and the sources that are available now about this versus the sources that were available by then are completely different things because the reporting on this mostly was done through the Japanese equivalent of 4chan So, weird that this was a case in 2009, but there were several wrestlers that were implicated to this to various levels. Shima got in trouble because he didn't keep up the paperwork on this monkey. He did not... It is not known if he was actually anyone who was aware of the abuse of the monkey before this hit thing. He basically moved out of the dojo, did not keep the exotic animal paperwork current, so he got in trouble. President Okamura got in trouble because it happened under his company. And then there was like a mess of wrestlers that Either they were involved in it, they might have been people who done the abuse, they might have been people who try to act like someone else was doing the abuse. But this, the main, like the three main figures that are usually involved in this are Ryoma, who currently wrestles as Yohei in pro wrestling Noah, a dojo trainee who I have their name here because they were just about to do their big like promo test, and that's actually something that I think is worth talking about in a second, but they had a dojo trainee who basically got got told, like, you're either going to be kicked out of it or you're going to be starting straight at, back at the beginning about this. Okay, so the trainee was called, name was Naoki Masushita, and then the last person was Shingo Takaki because they think that he was in some of the photos but looked like that the monkey escaped and he was holding the monkey in a way that looked like he was choking the monkey, but... It was also something where they said, like, oh, he might have just been the person who tried to catch him, and they took a photo of it right afterwards. There were other wrestlers that were involved to various degrees that we don't necessarily know their capacity, but basically it was these three. Those three wrestlers, Shima and the president, their massive pay cuts, and Shima and uh, Shingo shaved their head as the act of contrition. Ryoma Yohei got suspended for a year. He would leave the company and disappear for like three years until re-emerging in San Antonio of all places, trading with Funaki, And then he got back into the uh, Japanese wrestling scene and never heard a single word or anything about Naoki Matsushita beforehand after this, like this kid was gone. So that's kind of the uh, very quick and dirty of the situation. It, it was kind of remarkable. Like this kid was about to do his protest, which is a big thing because Dragon Gate still has the system where you pay, you train then you do a protest, and if you pass the protest, you can continue training. So he was someone who was very far in the process. So this was happening at this time. Both Shima and Shingo had shaved heads at this show. It became kind of a thing for Shingo, and also had a thing of, of how Shingo was booked over the next few years because of this because of this incident and his uh, responsibility or just his general implication in it. That to this day, I lived through it. I don't know what Shingo did. I Other wrestlers that were around at the time— Got the sense that Kenichiro Arai was a whistleblower, and I got the sense that uh, Yohei was an instigator, and Shinga and Shima just never paid like his license fees, and that's why he got in trouble because he adopted this monkey and left it at the dojo after he was like in his thirties, married with a kid. So like this isn't like he thought this would be funny to leave a monkey there. This is the fact that Shing that Shima was like a full adult at this time.
0: Yeah, it's an unfortunate situation all around. Uh, I mean, we discussed it. Years ago on this show, I really don't have any strong opinions on it. Uh, It's an unfortunate situation for everybody involved. It was also an unfortunate situation for Brian Kendrick uh, on this timeline as July 30th. So we are now dealing with. Post opened the historic gate on July 30th. Brian Kendrick is released from the WWE. They wish him well on his future endeavors. Uh, Kendrick was there this time around from 2005 until the summer of 2009. Most notably had a great tag team title reign with Paul London. But the last you know year or so of his career, he was completely floundering uh, and wasn't doing much. So July 30th, he is released And on August 11th, Gabe Sapolsky announces Brian Kendrick versus Shima will take place on Open the Untouchable Gate. And Gabe Sapolsky says in a MySpace message uh, that he was trying to fill out the final slot uh, on this card, a singles match versus Shima, and he says DG USA was considering the following names that include former PWG champion Human Tornado, Jack Evans, Two Cold Scorpio, Chikara wrestler Hollow Wicked, and Ring of Honor wrestlers Tyler Black, Jimmy Jacobs, Chris Hero, and and delirious. Sapolsky goes on to say, there was really no rush to book someone since there was a wealth of talent available on the Sunday. Sapolsky said in a MySpace blog. Then last Thursday, I saw Kendrick was already taking dates since he was booked for PWG. So I shot him a call and left a message saying we had a spot open against Shima in Chicago. He called back 20 minutes later and said, you want me to work Shima in a singles? That's great. I'm in. Thus, Brian Kendrick versus Shima fills out the card, but even as a talent comes back to the indies, a talent goes to WWE as August 24th. It is announced by Ring of Honor that Brian Danielson has signed a contract with World Wrestling Entertainment. Weirdly enough, Kendrick and Danielson go on to wrestle at the August 28th PWG show. That show is called Speed of Sound. It is available on the High Spots Wrestling Network. So Kendrick's first match back to the independents is a match against Danielson, who was in the process of leaving. And then one week later, PWG runs yet another show. This one featuring Dragon Gate talent, such as Noruki Doi versus Joey Ryan, Shingo Takagi versus El Generico, the Motor City Machine Guns, and Shima versus Brian Kendrick and the Young Bucks, and Brian Danielson versus Chris Hero in one of my favorite matches of all time. And then September 6, 2009, live from the Congress Theater in Chicago, Illinois, we bring you Open the Untouchable Gate
1: yeah and just to back up for one second this is something like that was with dragon gate announcing their uk tour soon they would start dragon gate uk they would do a couple german shows and then they started developing this relationship with pwg that we would see really exist up until current day and then also before this they were going to be a Setting up a relationship with AAW in Chicago. Of course, this is a vastly different AAW in 2009 than it is now. And this is something that is going to be interesting to kind of chart. So as you listen, listener, just think about like, this is what their plans were in 2009, who they were dealing with, because this would become more of an, more of an issue, especially with these appearances of Dragon Gate wrestlers, because at this time, they had about six to eight wrestler, Dragon Gate wrestlers on each show. And... You have to fly them out from Japan, usually out of either Kobe or out of Tokyo into the United States. And for a while, it was like a three-day trip. And then more and more, like wrestlers, just because of the kind of jet lag you're doing doing this, it's like, hey, why don't we have it so that they are staying here for like another week or so? So we started seeing these appearances, and this would also become a storyline in the promotion, as right now they're only planning on doing single shots, and this quickly would get abandoned as we move into 2010. So just wanted to provide that little kind of nugget of something just as you were listening to the series. Keep in mind about how many DGUSA shows there are and how many other appearances these Dragon Gate wrestlers are making.
0: Absolutely. And I want to back up again to that list of names that I read off as possible opponents for Shima. I had not heard Any of these rumored announcements uh, in the past until I started doing research for this show. And just to reiterate, the names were Human Tornado, who, to my knowledge, never, ever worked for Gabe. I don't think he did any Ring of Honor shots. He never appeared in Dragon Gate USA. He never appeared in Evolve. There was Jack Evans, who we'll see a few shows down the road. Two Cold Scorpio, who worked the first show, same with Hollow Wicked. And then the Ring of Honor wrestlers, Tyler Black, Jimmy Jacobs, Chris Hero, and Delirious. Now, Jimmy Jacobs is on this show and will be on future Dragon Gate USA shows. Chris Hero, uh, before signing with WWE, worked uh, the handful of the first few Evolve shows. Delirious and Tyler Black, those certainly seem like interesting names to you, especially in the context of working Shima in a singles match, don't you think?
1: Oh, absolutely, especially considering that This was a time that uh, Brian Danson was on the way out. One of the many times that uh, Davey Richards had a big blow up with uh, Ring of Honor and went back to the Indies for a couple months. And then you had Tyler Black, who basically had three or four years of Ring of Honor, where he was basically exclusively a Ring of Honor guy, other than a couple AAW and PWG appearances. And then Chris Hero probably now is more remembered for his return to the Indies when he worked up. Gabe, like, basically, Gabe was his home promotion for a lot of it. So it's interesting, like, those lists given. And, of course, when you talk about, like, people and PWG names that never made it to the next level, and probably in today's marketplace would be one of the premier indie stars, the list kind of starts and ends with Human Tornado, doesn't it? Just because of how much of, like, an I know this was a little bit for, for your time, Case, but Human Tornado was an incredibly popular person on the internet as a wrestling fan like he would have videos out like he was one of the first people who released stuff to youtube and just like the character and his style and especially through like pwg at a time where pwg was still somewhat ascendant like this pwg in 2009 was already kind of the premier west coast indie but it was not nearly to where pwg would be five or six years later so it's interesting to hear those names being introduced because human tornado did like a very short stint of Ring of Honor before he retired his first time. Like, he was a guy who never really got out of out of California, and, and if he came along this decade, he probably would be, like, one of the biggest stars on the indies.
0: Yeah, geographically, he was probably more hindered by that than anything else. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. In a modern context, uh, there would certainly be aspects of his gimmick that would need to be altered for a 2020 crowd, but the talent... Uh, was undeniable then. I mean, his his PWG feud with Chris Hero uh, over the span of 2007 and 2008 is one of the more infamous PWG feuds, if not the landmark rivalry in that promotion's history. And his name stuck out uh, more so than any of the other ones because, you know, Jack Evans... Had the Dragon Gate tie-in, a uh, uh, singles match with Shima would have been interesting. Too cold. You're kind of looking at juniors of different eras. That would have been cool. Hollow Wicked, uh, who appears in the fray match on this show, the uh, not the dark matches gave suppose he'd like to put up, but the bonus match. Uh, typical you know, Gabe. Was, uh, typical uh, Gabe uh, right uh, there. It's you know. Well, you had the Golden Rose or the Gold Circle, I think they were called. The first three rows got early. Uh, and minutes, and then they got to watch the fray match, and then they were, you know, front three rows for the Dragon Gate USA show, which is great. Uh, but Hollow Wicked versus Shima would have been interesting, and then he obviously had a storied history with Tyler Black, Jimmy Jacobs, Chris Hero, and to an extent Delirious. I found those names to be very interesting. But when Brian Kendrick gets into the fold, uh, of course, Gabe gave him a call and I— Maybe you can speak to this a little bit, but Brian Kendrick and Paul London, you know, as somebody that was just aware of WWE and TNA and was, you know, eight years old in 2006, uh, Kendrick and London were two of my guys because I speak very highly of 2006 SmackDown. I love that era of that television show. And... The the landmark guys, I mean, yes, you had your main eventers like Undertaker, Batista, uh, Rey Mysterio to an extent, but my guys were London and Kendrick because they would wrestle these work rate matches against uh, Mercury and Nitro, the m M&M m tag team, that were always incredible. And that spoke to me way more than whatever The Undertaker was doing. And I get the sense that in 2009, 2010, there was a real buzz around London and Kendrick coming back to the Independence. Kendrick, you know, he's had a few different spurts uh, as an independent wrestler. He's now back in WWE. Paul London, man, he's never really had a major run post WWE. Uh, and it's a shame because, you know, he worked PWG and worked the tag team with El Generico and they had great matches together. He's in, he, you know, he was in lucha underground seemed to enjoy that i saw paul london have a match in ring of honor against roderick strong that is one of the best matches of the sinclair era but when they tried to book a rematch london no-showed and has never been brought back since and it just seems like it's been a legacy of disappointment for these two guys that came back to the independent promotion with such hype and such promise
1: yeah so i have kind of like a unique emotional relationship with paul london because he was a TWA guy, the same promotion that Spanky came out of, the same promotion that trained Brian Danielson. And he was the one that didn't necessarily immediately boom on the independent scene before Ring of Honor. So I would get a chance to see him on like my local uh, UPN affiliate that had an indie that bought time. And he would be there all the time. And then he would suddenly go to Ring of Honor, kill in Ring of Honor, and then get to WWE. And then everything, as you said, kind of has leveled off since then i get the sense that uh that paul london is a different kind of cat and not necessarily always going to have wrestling as his forefront of interest but brian kendrick's so interesting because this is right after like the brian kendrick and when he was after because i think london got fired a little bit before he did and he had a time on smackdown with ezekiel jackson and like that he was trying to become like the the, this was, like, during the Mike Adamley days, and they had, like, the, the crews... I forgot what the, what the match was called, but it was, like, the special championship match where, basically, it was an Iron match with several people in it, and then whoever had the last pin on the champion at the end of the match would be the champion. And I remember, like, on the internet, like, people, like, grabbing a screen grab of current WWE champion V. Brian Kendrick. Yes. And that always being yes, yes, a yes. little bit of a meme. But, yeah. No, so, like, this definitely was the first generation of guys who went off to WWE, like even before CM Punk, were now returning to the independent scene and had that cachet and at this time, Brian Kendrick probably had as much cachet coming off of his WWE stint than anyone else in wrestling and it's interesting like the long path it took him to come back to WWE through the Cruiserweight Classic because he basically had been about seven years, I would say, yeah, it would be about seven years where he bounced around, he did New Japan, he did some TNA, but at this time, him coming back to the Indies was considered a huge deal. So him getting this match with Shima, even though the match wasn't necessarily up to the standards of the remaining singles matches on this show, was a huge moment. And it was something that I definitely, sticks out to the back of my mind that, of when Gabe was always big about using MySpace in the email blasts, even back then, it was always seen as, holy crap, it's gonna be Spanky versus Shima. And that was like a big deal. And this is like where I say like, this is the more proof of concept because this is exactly, and there's matches on the show that more felt like this. You get a lot of the precursor to what would have been the modern WrestleMania weekend matches on the indies on the show. And, Absolutely. And I feel like that this was like one of those matches that you very well could have seen on a WWN Mercury Rising Super Show or also the uh, or also the High Spots uh, Super- WrestleCon Super Show. So I thought like that was always kind of a remarkable thing when rewatching this today. I had that kind of stick in my head about a lot of this card.
0: Absolutely. So, Mike, unless you have anything else to add, I think that takes us to the beginning of this Open the Untouchable Gate show.
1: Yeah, so Open the Untouchable Gate was on September 6th, two days actually right after the debut of Open the uh, Historical Gate. I forget the exact name for this pay what they call the, enter pay-
0: the dragon
1: yeah enter the dragon so enter the dragon was on the fourth this was on the sixth this was from the congress theater as k said 550 people which if you remember from the last episode that was precisely at that threshold that they wanted to get on each one of these shows so that had had pretty full house at least for what they were expecting and it seemed like tickets really picked up as soon as they announced like these three big singles matches on the show but let's get into it uh I don't remember actually ever watching this fray match, but the fray match was Hallow Wicked won over Eric Cannon, Flip Kendrick, Mustafa Ali, Johnny Gargano, The Great Malachi, Lewis Linden, and Shima Zion.
0: Yeah, so I did not watch this match. uh, Even in a quarantine state, there are only so many hours (laughs) of the day. And like I said last time... I'm not going to spend those hours watching a fray match. Uh, That being said, hollow wicked, who had a really good showing in the Chikara showcase on the first show is brought back here. He gets the win. It should also be noted that Johnny Gargano, uh, who is Midwest based, but made the drive to Philly for the first show is brought back here. The rest of the names are all new to the promotion, uh, and they're all Midwest guys. And then Shima Zion, I believe, was still based in Pittsburgh at the time, but was working Midwest dates.
1: Right, so Eric Cannon's from Minnesota. We'll be talking a lot more about Eric Cannon as we get into the 2011-2012 case. but uh, Oh, yes. Uh, Flip Kendrick and Lewis Linden, the, the uh, tag team that I think is Cleveland-based, because I know that they still work AIW. Mustafa Ali, of course, now is in WWE great malachi who retired and before he retired worked a bunch of uh or worked a tour of zero one and i can't yeah, tell a you bunch anything would else. not be
0: the right word there yeah. he worked a few matches for zero one my my bad, my bad. My bad. <laughs> hey
1: i mean w- when you're laundering money you need to find something to, s- to clean that money on plane tickets so might as well
0: absolutely i mean he really if you look at his cage match Those are I mean, they are names that he worked. I'm not saying those matches look good, but (laughs) he literally worked zero one. And that is the best thing you can say about him.
1: Hey, I mean, there are people whose entire wrestling career they would go trying to work zero one and or just work in Japan in general, but and never do. But this guy
0: got the opportunity to. So, you know, I mean, good for him. He has to be on the short list of guys that have worked Ohio Valley wrestling And zero one. I think CM Punk would be on that list. Cole Cabana would be on that list. I don't know of many other guys that have shared the same ring. Ohio Valley and zero one. That seems like a very limited list. But the Great Malachi is one of those names.
1: Absolutely. It's just this is wrestling in in the late two thousands, y'all. This is just how the how things were back then. But from there, we get into the actual show that made pay per view. The remaining shows were all on the uh, w- Club WWN. Boy, that name sucks. Club WWN service is a part of Open the Untouchable Gate. The opening match was a rematch from Open the Historic Gate, of course. This is the match that Two Cold Scorpio begged to see again even though he was not on this card. And It was <laughs> Dragon Kid versus Masato Yoshino where Dragon Kid gets another win on Masato Yoshino. Dave Meltzer has his notes wrong. This was not off of Dragon Rana. It was after the Bible crucifix pen and you know uh this is a match that was very good but it also was like you definitely see the lack of chemistry between these two
0: so i like this match more than the open the historic gate match i've always been a real big fan of this it's actually about 30 seconds longer than their first encounter but i feel like they get to the bulk of this match so much faster and there's less intimidation, there's less awkwardness, there's less of a feeling-out process, which there should be, it's their rematch, and they're working it as such, but because they get to everything quicker, as a result, they do more, and that more, which we will talk about excess a lot on this show. <laughs> the more that they produced here, not a bad thing at all. I thought it really added to the match, and one of the things that I, I guess... I'd like to know from you. So Lenny Leonard is on commentary and he's talking about how this is a rivalry built on respect and how, you know, you're gonna see matches later on in the card where there's this fierce rivalry, there's maybe some generational hatred there. But Dragon Kid and Masato Yoshino respect each other. And at the time in Japan, Dragon Kid was he aligned he was aligned with kamikaze at this time, I believe. Am I wrong in that? Yeah, yeah. He, Okay, he was Kamikaze, and then Masato Yoshino was World 1, so you're kind of dealing with two tweener units in the Dragon system. And as a result, the heel-face dynamics in these first two matches are very strange. Yoshino certainly acts as a heel in the first match. Here there are moments where Yoshino's attacking Dragon Kid from behind, he's kind of sneering at the crowd... And then Dragon Kid will do the same and will get the same reaction. Instead of the Chicago crowd cheering the babyface for, you know, uh, giving the bad guy a taste of his own medicine, Dragon Kid will do the same thing and will get the same result. He will be booed as well. So there is this weird sort of like double heel, double face dynamic at play. Does that hurt your enjoyment of the match at all? I think
1: that uh, it definitely is in play, and it's something that we definitely— are going to more get into in the next match because at this time, as you mentioned, Kamikaze and World One, World One was supposed to be more of a super face than Kamikaze, and you did have the fact that that Yoshino was more than willing to go heal. Of course, he was straight out of Muscle Outlaws at this time, so this is still in that time frame where he's fresh off of his really long tenure as a heel. I mean, basically, although like Italian Connection were seen as face at time basically through everything they were kind of like the heel unit he was in heel unit so he still had those tendencies whereas dragon kid never really was a heel so him doing this was always kind of weird and this is a uh the thing about this match that got me and why i kind of marked it lower was so this these are guys that at this time would have faced each other hundreds of times and it got to an extent where I mean I've seen the show probably 4 or 5 times but I was able to call each next spot as if I was watching a uh, Penta Saramado match out of a W just because <laughs> like they had their system of where they were going to go to how they were going to escalate and you, you would think that they would have a little bit of better chemistry in that regard but also they would add in like neat and interesting quirks that kind of instead of me just being completely on autopilot in the match kind of like make me raise my eyebrows like there was a moment where uh yoshino goes to the floor and then and then dragon kid jumps over the top ropes and does a kind of really messy looking head scissors to the floor which is something that you don't see much out of them both for like that kind of risk and also for the fact that it did not look very smooth and these two guys are probably two of the most smooth people on the roster i would argue so i think that's fair i i think that that was a thing uh the thing that i thought i was gonna ask you about this was so we talked about on historic gate how they opened the show with bb hulk versus yamato and that one felt more like a king of gate match maybe even like a singles main event style match that was slow building up to the fever pitch in the end this match was an out- outright sprint which was something i remember you were talking about about how they wanted to start the shows here do you think that having this kind of match as a sprint opening this was more effective than how things were for historic gate
0: The historic gate opener is really weird. Like I've been thinking about that match just because I've had time to think about it of it's a slow sort of plotting grappling match on the first Dragon Gate USA show. And it's these two really exciting wrestlers that work into this like weird, like grapple heavy, uh, intense, like. It's almost like a strong style build to that match, and it's a great match in a vacuum, but it's a really strange match to open up that show. Now, I understand why they did it. Yamato and Hulk would you know, go on to be a focal point for the Japanese talent in this promotion. I get why they showcased those two first, but it's a strange match given the context of the promotion, whereas this match, Dragon Kid versus Masato Yoshino, I think it's that style personified. It's the... uh, oh, I saw the Super Card of Honor match in 2006. Let me go check this out. Well, they're going to get their money's worth on this opener alone because that's the style they were expecting. I agree to an extent of what you said about kind of knowing what spots were coming next. I felt that same way up until when Masato Yoshino kicked out of the Ultra Her Corona, which he lost to in Philly. And then right. after that, uh, they kind of take the match to what I think is a, is the next level. Yoshino comes back and fights really hard. He hits a really nasty-looking lightning spiral on Dragon Kid. That is such a great move that I wish he would use more. I get it. He's dumping a guy on his neck. Probably no fun to take, but it always looks awesome. And then Dragon Kid scores the win here with the Bible. Really enjoy this match. I, I think this is a four-star opener. Maybe it's one of those where if it's you know, after intermission, if it's a little later on the card... I maybe don't rate it as highly, but I came into this DVD fresh, ready to go, ready to watch some wrestling, and they delivered a ton of impact, a ton of moves, and in a compact, precise format that I really enjoyed.
1: Yeah, I went three and three quarters on this. This would, this would be one of my must-watch matches on my list case. So even though I didn't go four stars, this is my second highest rating in my mind. But yeah, this was like... The perfect way to start this kind of show was have this all-out sprint. And boy, the lightning spiral is a move that I, I think he doesn't do it as much because of his own neck, not other people's necks anymore. But whenever I see it, I think about like the really bad version that Paige did. And I'm like, <laughs> man, this is a really sweet move where you're basically doing like a corkscrew uh, uh, fireman's carry neckbreaker. And it's such a, like, devastating move. And this was a time where Yoshino would bait, would do the lightning spiral off the top rope, and it was insane. And just, like, seeing this and, like, knowing these guys throughout their career, it just was a very exciting opener. And I thought that it was, when we talk about, like, the weird dynamics here, one of the reasons why the weird dynamics were so on point was because the next match, if uh, moving on to the next match, unless you have anything else you want to add before we move on,
0: the only thing I have to say is that after the match, Yoshino blew off the handshake to Dragon Kid, meaning that we are far from seeing the last Dragon Kid versus Masato Yoshino match.
1: <laughs> yes, and they made a big point on, we are now on the road to the Freedom Gate Tournament, and you, they are doing the, the standard game trope of really fixating on the fact that Dragon Kid was 2-0, but Masato Yoshino was 0-2. So, yes. Something to do with this. But then we get into the second match, which also has Kamikaze members on in this, but not formally kamikaze at this point, as Granakuma teamed with Yamato, going against like the big historic uh, Chikara tag team of Jigsaw and Lightning Mac- Mike Quack and Bush. Really kind of weird match because you had Dragon Kid who definitely aired more on the face side, even though he was doing some heelish things to Yamato and Granakuma who were outright heels. Of course, this match ended when Quack and Bush hit the Quack and Driver two on Granakuma. This was. N- that this was a, a match where things weren't working the, as well as they were in Philadelphia, but this is also really the first match that was Westerners versus Dragon Gate guys, and maybe that could have been some of that as well.
0: It's a match that didn't need to be as long as the opener, right? This match clocks in at right around 14 minutes. I think if it goes 10, I think much more favorably of this match that I ended up doing. And it's not because it's a bad match. There are some awkward moments uh, with everybody involved. I think everybody at some point has timing that is a little off. Their chemistry gets a little shaken. But it's not a bad match. The thing that jumped out to me here is how vicious Yamato looked in this match. Oh, that God. This Yamato is just... <laughs> a thing of the past. I mean, we talked on the first show about how BB Hulk aged so quickly and so rapidly that dancing Hulk feels like it might as well have been 20 years ago. This Yamada is just like, my God. I mean, he's laying his stuff in. He looks quick. He looks happy to be in the ring. And we really just don't see that that often from Yamato anymore. Yeah.
1: And this is of course, even before like his big heel turn, like he was a tweener in dragon gate at this time but this is before he became he went from uh, I think like the nickname technically was either second generation geku yujo or battleship where were like his nickname and his persona there of course his name is after the battleship Yamato from World War II. but this was he had a hell of a spear during this time case and the sleeper suplex were two of the most nasty moves all card long and he was just it was such a delight to like have him in this element. I do think that, one of the reasons, other than it going too long, was the heel side Granakuma and Yamato really worked at a certain level that I don't think that, sadly, for as much as like we put over Jigsaw and Mike Quack in a Bush on the last show, did not kind of fulfill their end of the bargain here.
0: Mike, you're so on the money about Yamato's spear. First of all, because when Yamato hits his first spear in this match, I'm like, that's the moment where it's like, oh boy, like th- this guy. I just, I forgot that that Yamato existed. And you're also right on the money about Jigsaw and Quackenbush. Look, I'm not a big Mike Quackenbush guy. I've never been. I think he's annoying as a person, I think he's annoying as a wrestler. Jigsaw, I very much like it, although there were moments in this match where. Uh, their creativity actually worked to the best of them specifically so Jigsaw's knee has worked over this entire match and it's worked over to the point of depletion he's having trouble running the ropes. He, ropes he can barely stand up at one point he goes and puts Gran Akuma in like the doomsday device position he has him up in that electric chair like on his shoulders he can't hold the weight but instead of dropping Akuma he simply simply drops to his knees and then Quackenbush hits what is basically a meteora Onto Akuma from that position. I thought that looked excellent. That is the peak of this match for the Chikara Sekigun side, but they're not on the level of a Yamato, and I think that is discovered very quickly in this match, and it probably factors into the way Chikara is booked for the rest of this feud. Yeah, I,
1: I think that's a pretty valid point, and I think that's to the detriment of someone like Jigsaw, who I think was a very effective babyface in peril in this match. I think a lot of my issues with this match were you had like the idea of Mike Quackenbush who has some of the worst angry faces in wrestling where he just comes off looking like a pompous dickhead and I think that think like, that done like this and of course Quackenbush's style does not mesh well with someone like Yamato who at this time you know how much I just like Yamato doing MMA stuff in 2018-2019 Yamato doing his stuff in 2009 made sense it looked awesome. It looked awesome. It looked brutal. And Akuma, who, you know, he was the person that was selected to kind of break away from the pack and be like the uh, true-born person, true-born DGUSA person. He was perfectly solid here as well. I felt like that him and Yamato had good chemistry here, and we would see this go on through the rest of uh, 2009 and 2010 with this, but this definitely was a point where like you kind of saw them go like, okay, so this is what we're working with. Well, we're going go to go play and be here. Because it definitely felt like that everything kind of changed for the Chikarasaki gun after the show. For sure. After the match, and I mean, I don't really have too much to say about this. No, match. no, no. You're yeah. going to keep going. Yeah. After this match, uh, Yamato choked out. Uh, Mike Quackenbush gave him the uh, rear naked choke after the loss. Hallewicki came out for the save. And then basically, Gran and Yamato sulked away. Next up, we had something that is a trademark on these early Dragon Gate USA shows, which is kind of the weird, abrupt, awkward in-ring promo where the Young Bucks wanted to have a Twin Gate match going off the fact that they were no longer the tag team of the future. They are the tag team of the present. This brought out Jimmy Jacobs, who was not booked anywhere else on the card, but Dave Meltzer said this was supposed to be a surprise for the local fans, and the idea was just an idea of giving them surprise and there's no long-term plans here. Of course, he would appear a little bit then. He, a little bit more after this, Mustafa Ali came out, tried to get him to join like whatever stable Jimmy Jacobs was teasing. I guess that might have been a thing in the Chicagoland area at this time. They refused, and then Jacobs and Ali beat them down. And then finally, uh, then that, that brought up Marahadi Sapa, who were the reigning Open the Twin Gate champions at this time, and and they cleared everyone out. And you could very audibly hear Ginky shouts of "Karma, no match, no title match," and it was just a real 2009 hour segment.
0: I actually kind of like this angle. Now there's a post-match promo later on in the show that I'm a much bigger fan of slightly ironically, slightly unironically. But I understand that I I don't understand why the young bucks had to come out and demand the title match at this point in the show, but they did that. Jacobs comes out with Mustafa Ali, who was kind of doing like a diet act, or maybe not Davari. maybe Muhammad Hassan, I guess is more apt. It's, uh, it's the same Mustafa Ali that is on SmackDown now, but such a drastically different presentation. And I hadn't seen that Mustafa Ali in so long. And I was so taken aback by it when he came out doing a bad, stereotypical Arab accent. He's got just a whole different look going on. And it's like, it's almost a bit of a bummer to watch because Mustafa Ali is such a talented guy and such a nice guy and seems comfortable. Uh, performing as himself in the the modern age and this gimmick that he was working just felt so contrived and so of the time and like reeked of post 9-11 fear and it was it was kind of a bummer to watch quite honestly they come out they cut this promo young bucks beat them up Saito and Horiguchi then come out and beat the young bucks up just like Mike said I'm just reiterating the angle at this point an enjoyable angle but I don't totally understand why it had to happen
1: yeah, yeah, like that's why I said, like real 2009 early Gabe hours, where this really did not add anything to this show whatsoever. If anything, this was a show that was tight, two and a half hours. And that's one of the things that I've really been enjoying about this is that each of these shows, you get six matches in two and a half hours and you're done. You could have cut this out and you've been at two hours and 20 minutes. No one would have lost anything from that. But I agree. Something that they, I'm glad they did not cut out, did not lose time, and it was just what it was was match which was the first of the three big singles matches i forget at this time if gabe called this a main event anywhere in the world or a special <laughs> challenge but this was a main event anywhere in the world and a special challenge as brian danielson on his farewell tour faced against the uh, reigning at the time and also reigning right now opened the Dreamgate champion naruki doi naruki doi won in 22 minutes and 26 seconds with the muscular bomb and this was Fucking incredible. Like if we're gonna like start a list of like the must see matches from this entire promotion, this is the first match on the list. This match was insane. If this was like during a time with Brian Danielson where a very smart move here was since these shows were taped for pay-per-view, they could not use any themes that were commercially licensable. So all the Dragon Gate owned all the Dragon Gate themes, so they all had their Dragon Gate themes, but most of the North Americans had different music and Brian Danielson, at that time, had the most famous entrance music in all of wrestling in the final countdown. And instead, uh, Keith Harvey, who was the ring announcer here, said, "And now introducing a man who needs no introductions." Lights go down, lights come back up. Brian Danielson is in the ring, the American Dragon in his classic crimson robe or maroon robe, ready to go right before the Dream Gate champion uh, came out chills case i had chills when this happened
0: i'm so glad you mentioned this because i was going to i thought this was awesome and i don't remember i didn't remember seeing this like i I thought there was like a a a part of my hang on like okay like i'm going to hear the final count and i know this match is next and then they do you know the man that needs no introduction lights down lights come back up Oh, my God, that's Danielson. Holy shit, that was actually really cool because there's a way that this could be done where it would be cheesy and it would be goofy. But they executed this to perfection. And quite honestly, the match that followed near perfection, if I say so myself. Yeah, I was four and a half stars on this match. I was in the same boat. I flirted in the past, I think... Like the first time I watched this, I was at four and three quarters. For whatever reason, this time I was like, yeah, it's four and a half, whatever. I'm not gonna split hairs with that because I love this match. Now I think if we're in at some point we will tweet out once we're farther along a list of like the essential dragon Gate USA matches. I think Shima and Yokosuka versus the Bucks on the first show would be on that list as well. But big time singles matches, this is the first one that feels like a match of the year contender. I Love this match. I love this era of Danielson in particular. His like 2008 into 2009, his last year and a half on the Indies, is a really interesting time for him because you can tell there are some shows where he's a little bit bored, and there's you know time where he's in pro wrestling Noah, and that stuff's all very good, but it's 2008 Noah, and it's just it doesn't have the same aura that 2005 and 2006 Noah had, and then there are times where he's working very different styles and is in different locations. I always loved Danielson and Chikara because it was just so different than you know him being in Ring of Honor. Him in a different context was so exciting. He's kind of bouncing back and forth between doing comedy and having very serious matches in PWG. Ring of Honor, he's kind of trotted out into more of a – Life and I guess, yeah, it, a Legend Rule. He's doing a lot of, even before the Final Countdown Tour, he's doing a lot of Dream Matches. One of the things that I found out that I did not know about before I started researching for the show was that at one point, uh, Ring of Honor had booked Brian Danielson and Kenta Versus the American Wolves on a show in 2009. I believe that was the June 13th, 2009 violent tendency shows that that match was supposed to happen on. Danielson got a staph infection he had to pull out and we ended up getting Roddy and Kenta versus the Wolves instead. But... There's really no clear direction for him because he kind of he's done everything in Ring of Honor. He's held the title. He's had great feuds. He just slayed Morishima, and he comes into 2009 a little directionless. And this is one of the few matches of this time period where he feels and looks and wrestles like he's comfortable and like he knows the exact moment that he's in, and what the situation calls for. And it had been a long time since I had watched this era of Danielson, and I start seeing the elbow strikes that I hadn't seen in so long. And then he does his backdrop driver off the top rope, and it's just one of those Danielson things. A few guys have this ability to where you're watching the match and you're enjoying it, And then something happens, something clicks, and immediately you're like, oh, shit, this is a great match. And it just it's like he lulls you into greatness somehow, and so few guys are able to do that. I mean, that almost feels like it's uh, a tribute to the King's Road style in a sense where you could watch Masao and Kobashi grapple for 15 minutes, and it's not boring, but it's not the most engaging thing, and then one chop goes awry, or there's one big suplex, and all of a sudden – you are witnessing greatness. And that is why Brian Danielson is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, because he is able to do that. And I think this Daruki Doy match is one of his better American independent matches. I love it.
1: Yeah. And it's something that this match, 22 minutes and 22 and a half minutes, basically, was pretty much when you're like watching a. Uh, Indie match when we watched Dancing at this time it was such a special match because this is because he was someone that would wrestle long without it being masturbatory he was someone that would have like the rest segments and it wouldn't feel like a rest segment it would feel like okay he's doing something even though like he's turned the tempo down a little bit and for someone like naruki doi which i'm on record about how i feel about naruki doi this time but this has made me reassess Maybe it just was the situations he was put into Dragon Gate had such big issues because Naruki Doi more than held up his end of the bargain. And this was a match very much so where Brian Danielson came in there, was like, I'm going to have a great match, and I'm going to leave this match and this promotion for the better. And I definitely felt like that was the case because he was facing the reigning Dreamgate champion at this time. I mean, we're, we're in the heart of his reign at this time before it got kind of ridiculous. And it, this match was built up, and it was built down, it was built up. This was the match that felt like the true WrestleMania weekend match, which is kind of appropriate. We're recording this when we're recording this. This is the week of what would have been WrestleMania, when, when this will get released far after that point, but just so you all know. And this kind of gave me that feeling of that. And it had big shocks, such as Naruki Doi fighting out of the... Uh, Cattle mutilation and then immediately going into the seated elbow strikes for a pen for a pen tip that had a deep kick out and it was one of those kickouts that the crowd reacted not just with a pop, but was with astonishment, thinking, how did this guy kick out of this? We've seen Brian Danielson do the cattle mutilation and the seated elbows for now four to five years, and he puts people away with this. And I feel like that like that was the moment where this went from a great match to truly something special. Dave Meltzer at the time gave this four and three quarter stars, and this is two thousand nine. Dave Meltzer giving four and three quarter stars. If this match was released today, this would probably be a five and a half star match in Dave Meltzer's mind.
0: I completely agree. I I think that is, and that is. I don't I, I don't read that as a knock on Dave either. No. It's just his his scale has changed, and this would be a five plus star match in the in the modern landscape because also there's just not there's not this level of intricacy and not these skilled levels of wrestlers on the independents right now. There's just not. And I understand you're taking the champion of the number two promotion in Japan, and you're taking Brian Danielson and saying, well, there's not guys as good as this on the independents now. I understand that's not an entirely fair comparison, but this style of match is just gone from the independents right now. And I think if any wrestler wants to bring this style back, they are more than welcome, because uh, I, I would appreciate it.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is this match was totally something special, and definitely why this show—I don't think we mentioned this beforehand—in the 2009 Wrestling Observer Mac, uh, Show of the Year poll, Historic Gate was number one. Number two was a UFC show. Number three was this show. And this match, and a match that we'll get to later, were the reasons why people were like, okay, and why— the format that Gabe ran with this, with both the pay per view and the DVD market, made perfect sense. On okay, we break even on the attendance because I know that everyone's going to want to see Brian Danielson versus Naruki Doi. I know everyone's going to want to see Davey Richards versus Shingo Takagi. So this was just one of the like the most one of the smartest decisions. Was hey Danielson's going to be going away now? What do we do? Well, may have been anywhere in the world. Well, we have this match before intermission. Like, I say that somewhat as a joke, but it's true. Like, this was before Gabe would do like a dream match of Mansoor versus I don't even remember who they were. Air Fox. Air Fox, that's Something it. Something like that. Yeah. No, yeah. this
0: is this is legitimately a main event anywhere in the world. Danielson loses. He eats just a vicious looking muscular bomb. I'm so glad he agreed to take that because it looked like it sucked. Um and then it's interesting. Danielson cuts this post match promo, and I don't know how much time you want to spend on this or if you even have really a strong opinion on it, but I was so just intrigued by his post match promo where he's talking about how, you know, he's not going to be here for forever. He's going on to someplace new. Everybody chants best in the world at him, but he's felt like for the past year he hasn't been the best in the world, and that more often than not, the best wrestler on the shows he's on is this guy, Davey Richards. Now we'll we'll circle back to Richards in a second, but Danielson's like apologetic for yeah. signing with WWE. And I found that to be very interesting because we're still on this wave, and I think Brian Kendrick and Paul London being released, uh, maybe fed into this a little bit of this wave of like Punk signing and Cabana signing, and now Danielson, where it's like, oh man, they're not going to let them do what they did on the Independence, like, they're going to water them down, they're not going to be the same. And we slowly started to see. Uh, That change and, you know, Kevin Steen signing and then being able to debut as, you know, Kevin Steen with a different last name. And then we go into the 2015 and 2016 signings where the American independent crowd is suddenly overjoyed that these guys have contracts and they've worked so hard, partially because the WWE and NXT house style changed so much. Now, I think it changed to a far more unnecessary and far more dangerous style, but that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> but it it reverted to, or I guess it, it, it's now reverted back to like, oh, that guy's signing like, oh, they're not going to use him, right? Because even in NXT now, there is such an overflow of talent because they just decided to throw contracts at people to prevent them from signing contracts elsewhere that, It was just weird to watch the cycle of independent professional wrestling and this idea that it's like, oh, man, he signed. He's no longer one of us to like, oh, they're using our guys on the big stage to, oh, man, they signed. And I just I found that to be very interesting.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely one of those things that when we watch back at this in 2020 versus how it was in the time, it just was at least like my response initially for these things was kind of wistful was kind of like, oh, those times we had before aren't going to happen anymore. You're going on to this new thing. You're going to go on to hopefully bigger and better things, but you're not going to be one of our guys anymore. And as you said, like, we've had this cycle of that. And this was very much so, like, the whole, like... I remember when CM Punk got signed, like, there was not, like, any uh, trepidation. There was just, like, people were more like, oh, we're proud of him because he was the true indie guy making it good. And then you fast forward to 2009 and it's kind of faded back from the indie guy making it good to, oh, we're losing one of our guys. We don't know what's going to happen from here. And then we had like the period like 2010 to 2012 where things were kind of just like in that real weird place before the most recent indie boom. Because I'm somewhat of the belief that there were kind of two distinct indie booms that really happened. But one boom was like the smaller boom that this happened during this time. And then the much larger boom in 2014 through 2017. So I would agree with that. So, so yeah, like this is definitely like at that point of the cycle. So I totally see your point here. And I think that promo is interesting if only for how they try to uh, do stuff later on the show. And it definitely gets into one of my favorite personalities in wrestling history, which is Davey Richards. So we'll get into that as well. Um, this was they made a big point of this, that this was the pre-intermission match on the show. And that's something that I think you still kind of see. Like PWG would always have the big blow-off match before intermission. Chikara would do it. When Ring of Honor used to have intermissions, that would be the case here. So it made sense. Like, if you're someone who was not around during this time period, that's no, ju- that's no value judgment whatsoever. But if you weren't around this time period, it was a big thing to have a big match before intermission. Your semi, Truly, your semi-main event often was the intermission match. So, made perfect sense through all this. Again, incredible match. Naruki Doi was really a man made for 2009 USA Wrestling, which makes a lot of sense when you think about Naruki Doi, right, Case?
0: I mean, he's someone that uh, stated he wanted to sign with TNA when TNA brought him in, and he felt too loyal to Dragon Gate to sign the contract, but Naruki Doi's always had a deep love of American wrestling, and it's on display, really, I think, for most of his Dragon Gate USA run.
1: Yep, yep, and, you know... Also didn't help the fact that, that Naruki Udoi's tag team partner had no interest whatsoever.
0: No, and good for Masato Yoshino. Smart man. Good investments, stays as healthy as he can. Smart man. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: I, just on a side, I hope he's keeping himself busy during this time period because his favorite things are gone from him. Maybe he's just washing his car a whole lot. <laughs> did, did you ever listen to like the Jack Evans interview where he talked about how Masato Yoshino is as a person? I don't think so. Okay, so this is a bit of a tangent, but back when this would have been like 0809, Jack Evans was calling into the Wrestling Observer uh radio show and of course Jack Evans credits his first trainer as Brian Alvarez, which is a yes. wild fact of indie folklore, but he was talking about how things were in Dragon Gate and he was like talking about people and then he was like, "Oh yeah, Masato Yoshino" man you don't see a whole lot of them after the shows i mean he loves baseball uh he has he has some really sweet sports cars and uh i guess he has real estate investments but man he everyone else like he had a lot of stories and when when, when i think brian asked him about it he said yeah no yoshino loves baseball loves his car and loves his investments and i thought that was kind of funny so he i love was, that
0: guy he's living the good life
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I real just kind of prestige stuff right there from masato yoshino so the uh Match after intermission was the match we talked about a little bit before. Shima versus Brian Kendrick. Shima won it in 10 minutes and 23 seconds with... I don't have it written down, but I would believe it was a Meteora. Given It the was time. a Meteora. It wasn't. Given it at the time. This was a... I went three flat on this. Like In comparison to the first show where there was a match I absolutely hated, everything on the show was was either good to excellent. So this is another reason why I say I like this show more than this. Like Three stars is the worst I gave on this show, and it was to this match. But... Just kind of like a goofy match, you definitely got the sense that Brian Kendrick wanted to work a lot harder than Shima, and Shima was just there to have a good time. And, you know, 10 minutes, it just was like a kind of a fun, goofy, weird singles
0: match. So I would have given the second match on that show, that Shikara Sekigun versus Kamikaze match. I had that right around two and three quarters. I just didn't, I didn't love that. This match... All I remember from my prior viewings of the show, and again, I like Mike, I've probably seen the show four or five times at this point now. I remembered not liking it that much, and I remember Shima hitting the craziest super droll, his backstabber yes. of all time. And when that happened, I jumped off my cash It is the wildest bump on a backstabber that is that is possible. I love it so much, but the thing about this match is I was watching it and it starts off kind of very 50, 50. There's some very, uh, 2009 language being used of Lenny Leonard's talking about how, you know, Kendrick is free from the corporate world of professional wrestling. And here, you know, he's going to be able to do all the moves he wants to do and this and that. And it, it felt a little dated at the time, uh, or I guess, you know, watching it now, but, but, as soon as Kendrick attacks Shima and starts healing it up, there was such a simple story in this. I mean, it's a very simple match, which is funny given the matches it's sandwiched in between of you know Danielson Doi and the you know Davey Shingo, which we'll get into in just a second. Watching it now, I was like, man, I really like this match. Oh, like, it's it fun. Was just it was so simple. Uh, Kendrick does some cool stuff, but she was, you know, Shima's often sticks out way more than Kendrick's. He hits that super drill, like I mentioned closes it off with a Meteora, gets the win. It is, I am probably being generous with this rating, but it just struck me watching. I was like, man, I really like this. Like, I understand everything that's happening. It's a clear story. They both look good. Three and a half stars. I am all about this match now.
1: It just was like, when I say three stars, it doesn't mean it was bad. It just was a match that, you know. Oh, for-
0: especially in comparison to the rest of the show. It's, it's, you know, not superior to anything else, but
1: it's yeah, not no, I, I understand
0: to be. what you mean. Yeah, exactly. It it was, it served its purpose and I really enjoyed the purpose that it had.
1: Yeah. 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 And, and also one thing I also liked in this match was, uh, how at this time, this was so fresh after Shima had all of his injuries that like, he completely changed his move set from 2005 to 2009, but he still would do stuff like tease the full course and this would be a big thing that I'm always so surprised to see how the crowds react to. First, you have the Venus uh, palm strike, then the Iconoclasm, but everyone knew that he still could do the Mad Splash, and even at this point, I'm kind of surprised. I'm like, y'all, you do know that Shima's pretty much stopped doing this move, and he's using this just for a a near fall now, but the crowd going nuts for that, and then him hitting also a pretty brutal Schwein in this match. Like Yeah,
0: no, his his offense looked really brutal.
1: Yeah, like this was... It, I know I've already, like, said this is like a WrestleMania weekend match. This is like a bowl a second round match, and it's perfectly fine for what it is.
0: Yeah, that's actually, that's a great comp, because they've got to take it easy. One of them's got a bigger match coming up later in the night, but what they did was effective. That's that's a
1: good comp, Mike. Look at you. Now, we want to talk about comps. This next match,
0: <laughs> match of the year. I'm so, I'm so excited. I am so excited. <laughs>
1: match of the year. A match of my re-watch this, I had the fear. Case, I had the fear because I did not do star ratings in 2009. I was not that much of a nerd at that time. I was too busy watching French art films. But Yeah, okay. I'm not
0: even going to touch that mic.
1: (laughs) I was a nerd for different things back then, Case. I was a nerd for different things. But this next match, one of the most fun and most brutal and special matches in Dragon Gate USA history. Like, we talk about lists. We talk about important matches in this promotion. This match was one of the most important matches in this promotion. I'm talking about Davey Richards versus Shingo Takagi. Davey gets the win in 25 minutes and 45 seconds with a Kimura. Went four and three quarters. This was the proto-jock wrestling match.
0: I love this match. And I, I used to not. There was a long time where my favorite match on this show was Danielson versus Doi and Davey versus Shingo was good, but I was like, oh, they did so much. Like, I don't know if all this works, whatever. No, in 2020, as we are dealing with a bunch of comedy bullshit and independent wrestling and we are maybe it's just because we're on a lapse of good wrestling because the entire world has shut down. But Davey Richards versus Shingo Takagi was exactly what I needed in the moment. There's so much just fun stuff about this match because this match is ultimately dumb because Davey Richards is a dumb human being. Shingo Takagi is immensely successful but seems like maybe he could be a little bit of a dumb human being. Mike Quackenbush is on commentary on this match comparing Davey Richards to Dynamite Kid, which (laughs) feels so 2009 that Quack is on commentary being compared to Dynamite Kid as a compliment and that Davey Richards is in the focal point of a professional wrestling show. And they go out there and it is exactly that. And it's a shame that the Voices of Wrestling flagship Twitter just recently uh, coined this term because now it's going to look like we're copying them when this is dumb jock wrestling personified. (laughs) Because every time... I wanted to get upset that they were doing a big move and then kicking out, or you know, Shingo's, you know, getting kicked in the head and bouncing right up. And I'm going, ah, is this dumb? No, it's not dumb. The story is brilliant. It just features two dumb guys who are too dumb to feel pain. And no matter how hurt <laughs> they are, they are going to continue inflicting pain until they can't anymore. David Richards does a tope suicide in this match where- <laughs> Chino's shoulder and flies three rows into the crowd. He wipes out the golden circle. These are people with lanyards, and Davey wipes them out. And then he bounces back up, howls at the moon, and continues his attack. This match is dumb in the best way possible. The fact that Davey does a shooting star press into a Kimura, which I forgot he did, that's a kind of a dumb combination, in my opinion. Why are you doing a shooting star into a, an intricate submission, but Davey does it. He gets the win with it, and it works. Four and three quarters. I love this.
1: It is such a fun match that you describe these things. And I apologize that the audio maybe gets a little bit harried because I'm laughing so hard. This is just like the dumbest, most fun match I've seen in months. Like, it's good to remember how stupid people are. And this was very much a bunch of dumb guys just doing dumb things. You, you missed my favorite spot of the match case. When Shingo backdropped Davey over the top rope right to the cement floor. Just thud.
0: Yes. <laughs> Just it's unreal. Like I, I tweeted this out a few weeks ago that I I had been going back and watching some older shoot interviews on the High Spots Wrestling Network, and I watched both the the High Spots shoot where they interviewed Kevin Steen and Davy Richards at the same time, and they kind of had it out there. And then about a year later, they have the Kevin Steen show and and Kevin is interviewing Davy and they're on much better terms. And it just got me thinking about Davey Richards It just how fascinating he is. Like oh, he's the best. A career that just it blows my mind in so many ways. I mean, he like low key has burnt so many bridges. But at the end of the day, I think if you ask most promoters like, yeah, 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 I'll book low key. Like, all right, fine. I'll book low key. But Davey, who hasn't wrestled a match since July of 2017, when he lost His last match, by the way, is on a CZW show. It is a fatal four-way match with Shane Strickland, Joe Gacy, Leo Rush, and the aforementioned Davey Richards. That's the last time he worked. And it's just he just has a weird career to look back on because he comes in, he like PWG is like his first major indie. Just because, like, geographically, it was easier for him to get there from Washington than flying him to the East Coast. And then Ian starts using him. ROH, he comes in with this giant push. And there's been a rumor that he was supposed to beat Danielson for the belt on his first night. Gabe has said that's not true, but it was a, a longstanding rumor. And then he becomes, like, the guy. And this is the show where Brian Danielson, of all people, the godfather of independent wrestling, perhaps, is saying, you know, I'm not the best wrestler in the world. You you people, you come out, you buy your tickets, you cheer for for whoever you want, but you should be cheering for Davey Richards was basically the point of his post-match promo. And you watch a match like this. And at the time, I mean, when the scene is littered with guys who are doing lesser versions of this and Davey's everywhere at this point, I can understand why this match might rub some people the wrong way, but we are so far removed from this era and I just loved it. I just loved this match for what it was. It's
1: just like how things are now and how things are in wrestling. Again, this is another Dave Meltzer uh, 2020 uh, five, five and a half star, six star match. Like this is just an insane match. You have Shingo who like the big joke was that later he would form a stable called the Kotsky, where Jay once gave the per- the best comp I've ever heard where he is the high school bully jock with his best friend Yamato in the front seat of his Trans Am, and he shoves Super Shenlong 3 and Chichiro <laughs> Tomanaga in the back and says, come on, nerds, we're going to go hang out, versus Davey Richards, who is the dumbest of the dumb, like, j- just so people get a friend of mine, before Davey did some really dumb things throughout the remainder of his career, this was the first time he, this was right after the first time he had a blow up with Ring of Honor, which... Sadly, this website is gone because he posted, like, this huge manifesto to Declaration of the Independence case. I, this would have been before your time. Yeah, but, I don't
0: know of this website.
1: So, so this was, like, a big indie sleaze website in the Northeast, was Declaration okay. of Independence. Joe Lanza, Joe Lanza will know all about Declaration of Independence. It was a big New Jersey, Philadelphia thing. But So it would cover, like, your CZWs, your uh, New Jersey All Pros, like, all those shows, all those places. And he posted, like, this 2,000-word manifesto about how he thought he wasn't paid what he deserved in Ring of Honor and that he was, like, a wolf and that he was willing to ride on the Indies and that he, it was just, like, a big, like... Uh, it, was a, it was a big, like, Dunzo manifesto letter that he wrote before this, like, before this match. And it was just, like, we were starting to... Davey was just starting to grow his brain. He was about to have, like, the most perfect, dumb wrestler brain over the next decade, like... I miss having Davey Richards around because you could always count on him to have like stupid matches that like, no wonder like he's now, I guess he still is an EMT, which God bless him, especially in today's climate. You know, he,
0: yeah, very true.
1: The, the real troops, the EMTs out there right now. But, uh, he just was like such a unique person that like, just like, this morning, like when I woke up early to watch this show, I was psyching myself up for this match, and the match blew away what my expectations were of a match that I've seen four times ago, where we just had dumb jocks doing dumb jock things, doing a shooting star into a Kimura, and then just that Tope Conhalo just needs to be repeated because he dives through the second and the, the middle rope and the top rope. Does a Tope Khan Clips Shingo like she, like I don't think this was called I think he just decided he will he wanted to do this Clips Shingo in the shoulder goes flying over the bike rack rail deep into the crowd like, you weren't exaggerating when you said this was, like, third row. Like, he took out all the lanyard geeks.
0: No, he he vanishes. Like, <laughs> Davey goes off camera on this dive, and I'll let you finish. But I promise the listeners, this is not the last time we'll discuss the Davey Richards dive. Because the next show, he does an even dumber dive that I will zapruder for everybody because it's unbelievable. But go ahead, Mike.
1: Yeah, yeah. I need to learn how to gift because just, like, doing a music video of Davey Richards in Dragon Gate USA is a nice thing that will be revisited a lot over the next few episodes because he's such a such a dumb jock and that proceeded with a after this match we have to talk about the, his dumb jock promo he gave
0: well, well, hold on so I, I just i have to get this out yeah Davey richards what i've determined just now listening to you davy richards is the embodiment of a walking talking galaxy brain Yes, that's That's what he is. And he's just coming off, this is, like, I tried to frame this in the first episode of, like, looking at the independent landscape, who are the guys? Because Davey was about to be crowned as the guy. But he had just burned his bridge with pro wrestling Noah. He's about to burn a bridge with Ring of Honor. Now he's working with Gabe again. That bridge is about to be burnt. He's going to just explode whatever Dragon Gate path he had. He's going to go to New Japan, burn that bridge. He's going to go to Ring of Honor again, burn that bridge. Uh, Pro Wrestling Noah tried to book him in 2013, and he burned that bridge again.
1: He no-showed that tour He Mario. no-showed
0: that, which he says he had a neck injury, didn't want to fly, whatever. He no- it, Ultimately, the match was announced, and then it ended up not happening he's in wrestle one for a little bit. He's in impact. He's, he started working a bunch of AAW towards the latter half of his career. And like some of those matches are actually pretty good. I mean, he wrestled Matt Riddle on an, on an AEW show. And this is kind of when Riddle had all of the buzz. He's just, and I, and I'm not mocking Davey when I, when I are attempting to be mean when I call him dumb. I love the way Davey Richards has aged because, a lot of uh, what was maybe so wrong about Davey at the moment is now stuff that I miss and that I wish more wrestlers uh, thought about themselves in the light that Dave does. It's why I will always have a soft spot for a guy like Loki, Loki sucks. And he seems like a pain in the ass to deal with. And I wish he didn't take himself as seriously, but I would rather you take yourself too seriously like Loki Than not take yourself seriously enough in this business. And Davey is on that same trajectory as a low key where he'll keep having return uh, matches announced. He'll keep canceling those dates and it will be the cycle of Davey Richards life. And it's just, it's just fascinating to me. And I really encourage everybody to go back and watch this match because I had so much fun watching it. Mike, the post-match promo, you can get into it.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, for whatever they do on Patreon, I'm going to try to get Joe to rewatch this match because I feel like this is a match that would bring a smile to his face. Absolutely. But, but yeah, no, Davey Richards, this is a pro Davy Richards podcast, just so that we're all clear. before we it's, can... the,
0: it's the one political stance I'll make on here. I'm pro Davy Richards, I'll say it. Yeah. I'm not afraid to.
1: So, I don't have the exact notes of the promo, but this was typical Davey Richards at this time, talking about... How he believes that wrestling is between Ben, he's not gonna do any fucking handshakes, but that guy over there, Shingo Takagi, is a fucking man. (laughs) Talked about how his wife said, the famous Jen, at this time... Which, if you remember, some of the Ring of Honor promos that come later, oh, just keep I that in can't. mind. <laughs> keep that in mind. Said that, oh, you only have one match this weekend. Is it going to be a tough one? And then she said, oh, I know who Shingo Takagi is. This is going to be a tough match. It's like she was right. And then he like, and then and then he like called out Brian Danielson and, and proceeded to snap on Brian Danielson because he doesn't want to be anyone's best in the world. He wants to be his own man. And just was an utterly bizarre, but incredible five minutes of a promo like it was very like mumble mouth like probably like davies had way too many concussions even at this point like
0: oh god yes
1: and and it just was like a great post-match just dumb jock promo
0: so that it's it's two stages because the first stage is the bad stereotypical Davy promo where he's mentioning his family and it just sucks. And then Danielson comes out and they're putting each other over. And I I, I was kind of tuning out. I was just like, Oh God. Okay. All right. Uh, This is a Davy promo. Let's get on with it. And then Davey turns heel. He spin kicks Danielson. He says, I don't need nobody's endorsement. And then poses on the rope with this mean mug face. And I was like, Holy shit. I'm ready to follow this guy into battle. Like <laughs> Davy Richards flipped like that in a second. He was evil and I was so on board with it. I like genuinely unironically once Davey turned on Danielson, I was like, I, I am into this. Whatever this guy is doing, I am following him because he's so good at being that high school bully, that jock, that alpha. And it was personified in that post-match angle it was awesome i loved it
1: it just was a insane match an insane time and i loved the the first part i loved how dumb the first part of the promo was too because just jock Davy promo so yeah that was the and the crazy thing is that was a semi main event because the main event was the uh Raining open the Twin Gate champions and Maraha Osapa, Ginky Horiguchi, and Ryo Saito versus the Young Bucks. They defeated the Young Bucks in just over 17 minutes when Rio Saito hit the double cross. And this will be something for people that just now are getting to Dragon Gate or have gotten into Dragon Gate over the last like half a decade, to be honest. Heal Ginky and Heal Rio Saito were a trip.
0: It, totally weird. I mean, I've been watching Dragon Gate and covering Dragon Gate been watching since 2013 been covering since 2014 i have never uh covered in real time a heel genki horaguchi uh and it's one of those deals where like i i this match this is such a weird match like i just never come away from it with a super strong take right because it's there and it's the 2009 young bucks which i really enjoy and again watching this match i i kind of said this on the first show too but like man, the Young Bucks used to do a lot of stuff. Like, there's a moment here where Nick Jackson does like the running knee in the corner, kind of like what CM Punk did. I think he does that to Horaguchi, and then in one motion, turns around and runs and does a suicide dive to Saito on the floor. I was like, I've never seen him do that since, but just, it was like, oh my god, they're doing so many moves, but in the context of the Saito Horiguchi heel team, which peaks... Uh, In 2011, where they have a match of the year contender against Don Fuji and Masaki Mochizuki, a match that uh, I know I have uh, somewhere. Maybe I can attempt to upload it because I know that's a match that's never really circulated well ever since. But it's a match of the year contender. Incredible match. in In a loaded year, 2011. That is one of the very best matches of that entire year. But I watched this match and... Uh, Yes, Horiguchi and Saito are established as heels earlier on in the night, and they play those characters well. I mean, it plays into the finish when, you know, uh, Saito gets hit with more bang for your buck, but Matt gets misted by Horiguchi and then is pinned by Saito with a double cross. Uh, It's a stronger character match than anything that had taken place on these first two shows. There is very clearly a gimmick that Real Hazard is trying to get over. And I think they would have had they returned, but this is the last we see of Saito and Horiguchi, uh for quite some time, at least in their in their current role. We never see Real Hazard again.
1: Yeah, because
0: time frame-wise,
1: we're in September. Real Hazard is about to turn into Deep Drunkers. Because by, yes. the, by the end of 2009, we have kind of the apocryphal uh, cage match before it was always on their live shows where uh deep drunkers wins the match i forget i think they shave yoshino's head for this one i think this is the one that yoshino loses and they all are sitting on top of the cage drinking beers as 2009 comes to a close so real hazard was the heel unit it was it had one of the cooler aesthetic in, in comics i remember how much i love that real hazard t-shirt that they had like yeah. like if this was and this was a heel unit that lasted for a while because we pretty much went straight from uh the, uh, the the destruction of New Hazard which was the first ever true born unit in Dragon Gate where it was basically everyone except for Tozawa was a member of of New Hazard they all turned on Hulk this led to Real Hazard or New Hazard becoming Real Hazard Muscle Outlaws dissolving starting a new heal unit continuity that would last until Mad Blanky to be frank and then we had the the evolution of like of Doi doyoshi turning face taking hulk and then forming world one so this was like right at that time period where like kind of like the generation change there was a very short generation war at the end of 2009 which was really kind of weird because like you would have like whereas now it's everyone who was in mexico Torimon generation dragon gate generation red this one had everyone who was in the first class of Torumon. So everyone that was there before T2P, the T2P students, but they didn't call them T2P students, and they also included Ginky and Rio, and it was more just like second gen is what they called it, and then the Trueborns. So it was a really weird time in 2009, but getting back to this match, getting off that tangent, this was just like a solid main event. Like, I feel bad that this match happened right after the incredible match of the year match that happened beforehand, because this was like... a three and three quarters, four star, like and main event tag match. And this was a match that I think the Bucks and Mariah Asapa had like four or five matches that made tape over the years in Dragon Gate. And they always were very solid matches. Like the, the two groups had great chemistry, but, you know, we wouldn't see Real Hazard again. We, I'm trying to remember when this the next time that Rio Saito came back, because it was a couple of years between when Rio Saito came yeah. back to Dragon Gate Higuchi. USA.
0: Horiguchi is back for the WrestleMania weekend shows in 2010. Cause at that point he's, he's aligned with warriors teaming with Susumu Yokozuka you know the, uh the Chikara Seki gun rather on one of those nights. Um, I uh, am stalling for time as I attempt to look up when Ryo Saito next wrestled in Dragon Gate USA. Cause at least, what I remember is he wrestled at the end of 2012, right? And according to CageMatch.com, that is indeed the next time he came over is the end of the year triple shot in 2012.
1: Yeah, so th- that was right
0: as that's Jimmy's era. Yeah, that's that's rise then. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a weird time for Saito because uh, Real Hazard just I, ages in a weird way. Like 2009 Dragon Gate, like you were mentioned, is. An odd time for the promotion. I don't love 2009 Dragon in Japan. I think it's probably the weakest Kobe world ever. I don't love the units at the time. And Saito's a guy who, when Saito peaks, uh, he is unreal. I mean, 2005 Ryo Saito is, is as good as it gets, but there's a lot of Saito that is bordering on actively bad. And then the real hazard's just kind of this in between where it's so character heavy that it takes away from the matches. And that is probably what happened here. I- I'm at around three and a half stars on this. Yeah, because
1: you- you're talking about like the character stuff. The big thing at this time was he uh, turned heel, and this was after the Ryosuka team was a big deal the Susumu Yokosuka and Ryo Saito team on Do Fixer. And he turned on Susumu Yokosuka, then Susumu turned heel and tried to join Real Hazard, but then Ryo Saito tore his Achilles tendon. And then Tsum- Sumiakosuka quickly turned face, said, oh, the only reason I joined Real Hazard was to turn on you because the double-cross was based off of the double-cross of Sumiakosuka. And then it kind of was all, like, just smoothed over by the time that Blood Warriors and Junction 3 happened because they were on opposite sides and they can say, like, okay, now we're going at it. And then, then you had Jemmies. So it was a really weird character time at this time for Ryo Saito. Gigi or Gucci, one of the more underrated heels in Dragon System history. Especially, like, when he had, like, When he started adding the extensions, had like the crazy eyes, he just looked like an absolute madman, and I felt like that that was something about it. A big thing about this match was, you talked about the finish, there was a visual pin on more Bang for your Buck here, which was a big thing for that moment, because this was a team of the Young Bucks that basically lost two-thirds of their matches in Dragon Gate, because they were seen as like trainees. So this was like a big moment for them. It was a visual pin going into the mist and the double cross.
0: Well, Mike, they're the tag team of the now, not the tag team of the future, and that's important to remember.
1: Yeah, I mean, they are going to be the tag team for the now for, like, the next six months until they go become the generation of me.
0: Oh, look at you. Yeah, yeah, you see what I did there? I'm kind of proud of that. That was good, that was good. That takes us to the end of Untouchable Gate, Mike. That was a solid way to end things. Yeah, that's
1: going to do it for this episode. Uh, Again, this is one of my favorite DGSA cards. I think it's definitely worth your time. Two and a half hours. Nothing on the show is going to be as bizarre and bad as Sue Scorpio versus Ken Doan. You get to have a match that was so funny and awesome that turned Case and I into into just laughing for minutes. You had the really cool Naruki Doi and Brian Danielson match. It's uh, one of my highest recommended shows in Dragon Gate history is Open the Untouchable Gate. Do you have any other last thoughts on the show?
0: As a show, I think it is entirely worth watching from start to finish it's a really enjoyable sit down i know most of you listening to this are probably looking for any sort of archive content and i would recommend starting here i also would like to preview what's coming up next because mike last time we did this show you asked me you're like do you want to preview untouchable gate and i was like now nah, i'm good and then as soon as we hung up i was like that was why did i not that was the dumbest that was the <laughs> dumbest thing i could have done why did we not preview the next show so if you'd like i can run down the open the freedom gate card which we'll discuss the next time on this uh rewatch and rewind series absolutely because it's time to, discuss,
1: to figure out who our first champion is who's going to open the gate to freedom case
0: Who is going to open the gate to freedom? The first open the freedom gate champion will be crowned on the next show. The aptly titled open the freedom gate show. We'll be back in Philadelphia at the arena for this one. And because Gabe Sapolsky is booking this tournament, it is a 14 man tournament to crown the first dragon USA champion. (laughs) Now you, you might be thinking, how the hell does a 14-man tournament work? Well, I'll tell you. So you have the Generation Now match, which features six-man Granikuma, Hollow Wicked, Johnny Gargano, Lince Dorado, and both Matt and Nick Jackson. The winner of that will go on to the main event to face the redemption winner between Brian Kentrick and BB Hulk. Those two lost their first two matches, but for some reason, they get a shot at the title. You have the tribute to Skyda four-way match, Shima, Mike Quackenbush, Super Crazy, and Jorge Rivera, And then finally a match that Gabe Sapolsky simply dubbed next level between Davey Richards and Yamato. The winners of those four matches go on to a four-way in the main event. And then you also have Eddie Kingston versus Jigsaw and Speed Muscle versus Dragon Kid and Shingo Takagi on the card.
1: It is a wild match. Just so you all know about the Gabe tendencies, this this tournament was originally announced as an... As a eight person tournament where the first round matches would go straight to the four-way match. He had to add six more people. Thank you, Gabe. Just
0: because. Yeah, just because.
1: It's a good thing we're not doing an Evolve podcast because when we get because the Evolve Championship was even more convoluted than <laughs> Evolve
0: this. Evolve nineteen. <laughs> Maybe the worst show of all time.
1: I mean, is it as bad as Evolve Tribute to the Arena?
0: Yeah, you, you know, it's not. It's actually <laughs> The the thing with Evolve 19, as we end the show on an Evolve tangent, Evolve 19 is actually not that bad of a show. It was just marred by iPay-per-view problems that, as a result, Gabe stopped the show so they could reboot the ipay view and then the show ran late. So the people trying to get from New Jersey, where that show was, to New York and the Hammerstein Ballroom for the Ring of Honor show, they either had to leave the Evolve show early or be late to the Ring of Honor show— and so it was just a logistical disaster on that front. But the show was not that bad. Evolve Tribute to the Arena and then Evolve 28, which coincidentally takes place at, uh, on the weekend of the final Dragon Gate USA shows, I find those two shows to be far more offensive.
1: I mean, we might have to talk about Evolve Tribute to the Arena when we get to 2012 because it does have an open the Freedom Gate title match.
0: So. Ugh. God, I don't. I don't want to rewatch that match, but for the show, I might have to. Yeah, we might. I, I mean, who knows how long wrestling might be gone? We
1: might be getting to 2012 within the next month. But by this time, because we just want to rewatch stuff.
0: Cross, this has been very fun so far.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this
0: has been a delight through two episodes. Although I keep looking at cards in the future, I'm like, oh, okay, fine. All right, that doesn't look as good, but I'll watch that too.
1: Yeah, we're going to get to a point, guys. Like this, and this will be an interesting thing because. As like we said in the first episode, what Dragon Gate USA was supposed to be very quickly becomes its own monster in of itself, and it's going to be worth getting into on this rewind and watch series. But case, I think that's going to do it for us today.
0: Yeah, that's it. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore in your case, and you can follow the Open the Voice Gate Twitter account at Open Voice Gate. Mike and I are making an active attempt to tweet from that account uh, more often so we can get you more Draggate content. That is all I have to plug. Uh, so thank you for listening. Mike, what do you have? Just go to Fuji with two eyes like Don Fuji. I pretty much tweet everything there. I just got my tracksuit today. I'm very excited. Awesome. Mike has, has gone uh, poly walnuts on us. And as someone that when I'm not watching Gate USA or IWA Mid-South, I'm watching The Sopranos. I'm re-watching The Sopranos for maybe the fourth time. It is the best show of all time. I feel very confident in saying that. It is just a masterful, just a piece of art, really. And I'm so glad that Mike is taking what he saw on the small screen and is implementing that into his real life. It's really inspiring.
1: It, it is something that I'm feeling my true self now, and that's what I'm going to be doing as we continue onwards in this current time period. But that's going to do it for us on this episode of Open the Voice Gate. Rewind and Rewatch. We'll be back soon probably if another one of these, or I just saw an announcement that they're going to have another, uh, an, another, uh, no people, uh, Kobe Samba Hall show. So one of those two shows we'll be back and covering, but until next time, take care, everybody.